theyeshiva.net. I'm going to explore today, with God's grace, an extraordinary teaching in the Midrash that also relates to this week's portion. At first glance, when you read it, it's easy just to gloss over it and not appreciate the full depth of what it contains. But today, we will demonstrate how a small, tiny teaching in the Medrash really contains such profound truths in terms of philosophy, theology, psychology, spirituality, our own emotional well-being, how it relates to our lives as individuals and our lives as part of a collective, as part of a family, part of a community, part of the marriage institution. And I'm going to begin with the following very famous halacha, very famous Jewish law concerning a mikveh. Everybody knows that in Judaism we have a concept called the mikveh, the ritual bath, which is a body of water, a pool of water, where when one immerses themselves, it creates a profound spiritual cleansing and purity and sense of sanctity. The mikveh applies both for men and women, even though different situations and different circumstances, and was used in ancient and is still used in contemporary Jewish life frequently and often for different purposes and reasons. But the common denominator is that the mikveh in Judaism has a very powerful ability and potential to be able to affect a deeper state of inner wholesomeness, purity, uh, clarity, sanctity in a human being's life. One of the most fundamental concepts of the mikveh is that it has to be natural water, not what we call mayim she'uven, which loosely translated will say is top water. So if I fill up my bath with top water, that's not kosher for a mikveh. The mikveh has to be natural water, which means heavenly water that is not affected by human contact. So for example, in ancient times, they would have rainwater that would descend into a cistern or a pit, in the ground, and that became the mikveh. Today we still use that rainwater, even though there's different methods that are used in order to be able to make the mikveh both very clean and very warm. But mayim shoven, if it's top water, it disqualifies the mikveh. The mikveh has to be that uh, natural water that's untouched and unaffected by the human processes. And the mikveh has to be gathered, as the Tyrus Kayanim says, bakarka, in a pit or a cistern that is carved out, is dug out in the earth. The question is why? If water has such an amazing power of cleansing, of of bringing a person to a deeper state of holiness, who cares? Why would Jewish law care if it's top water or it's different water, rainwater, or, or natural water that comes from a wellspring, which is, of course, the best type of mikveh? What's the difference? Water is water. If I'm taking a shower, is there a difference if it's this water or that water? Why, why a mikveh does this become so significant and so important? I'm going to leave this for a moment. This is Exhibit A. We're going to get back to it soon. And in order to understand this, let's introduce a very enigmatic and really strange, difficult to understand Midrash in the opening of Chumash, in the opening of Tanakh. This is in Parshas Bereshis, where the Midrash discusses the purpose of creation 
in the first chapter of Genesis. And in your source sheets, I quoted this medrash. Open up your source sheets. Can you have your source sheets if you're on Zoom or on the yeshiva.net? If you go to the yeshiva.net, the featured video, Women's Kairach class, has a source sheet on top of the video and bottom of the video. Let's read inside. Bereshis Rabbah, Perik Aleph, Piskadala. This is Midrash Rabbah Bereshis, the first section, first chapter, section four. Amar Rev Banoi, Rabbi Banoi said, The world and everything in it, the entire cosmos, was created in the merit of Torah. And this is the meaning of Proverbs chapter 3. God created the earth through Chachma, through wisdom, and because of wisdom. And the ultimate wisdom of the world is the Torah. Rebrachia Amar, Rebrachia says, Bishchus Moshe. The world was created in the merit of Moses. Shenemar, it says in the end of Torah, Dvarim Lamad Gimel, Vayar Reishis Loi. God saw that Reishis is for him. Bereishis, the beginning. This beginning is created in the merit of Moshe, who's called Reishis, the Genesis. Rabbahuna B'Shem Reb Masna Amar. Rabbahuna in the main of Reb Masna says, B'Shuz Gimel Dvarim Nivra Ha'olam. The cosmos was created in the merit of three things. B'Shuz Chala, Beschus Maestrus or Beschus Bikurim. In the merit of three famous mitzvahs, which are discussed in Parsha Shlach and in Parsha's Kairach and in a few other portions where they're mentioned. The merit of the mitzvah of Chala, the mitzvah of Maeser, and the mitzvah of Bikurim. Very briefly, what are these three mitzvahs? We're going to elaborate on them a little later in the class, but very briefly, what are the three mitzvahs? The mitzvah of Chala, everybody is very well familiar with. If someone takes flour, takes water, creates a dough, what we call an isa in Hebrew. The halacha is that if that dough has a significant volume, as the Torah says, Asiris Ha'efa, which is basically the volume of 43.5 eggs, you have to separate part of this dough, and it's called chala. And traditionally, this dough went as a gift to the Kohen, to the priest. It was considered sacred food holy food, pure food, that the Kayan would eat, the Kayanim who served God in the Holy Temple and could not support themselves. So the Torah mandated the rest of the Jewish community to be able to support them through different taxations. One of them was challah. If the dough was of a significant volume, again, 43.2, the volume of 43 eggs and a fifth of an egg, that's how much uh, dough there has to be. And then I separate challah. Today, the general custom is that if the dough is, you're using at least around five pounds of flour, so that is the mitzvah of challah, according to most opinions, and you can make a blessing, and we make the blessing before we separate this challah. That's the mitzvah of challah. There's another mitzvah called meiser. Meiser is a very interesting mitzvah. The word meiser comes from the word me'eser, which means a tenth, one from ten. The Jewish law mandated that all of the Jewish farmers who had fields, farms, orchards in the Holy Land, after they would harvest the grain, the fruit, the vegetables, a certain percentage of it was given for charity. This was a mandated charity given to the poor, to the destitute. The Kohanim and the Levim, the Kohanites, the priests and the Levites, again, they served in the sanctuary and they served as teachers and mentors and spiritual educators and guides. They didn't have real estate of their own. So they would be given a certain percentage of the harvest of Jewish farmers in the Holy Land in Eretz Yisrael. One of these 
dedications or tithings is called meiser. What is meiser? If I'm a farmer and I harvest, let's say, my wheat, my barley, my spelt, my oats, my rye, my legumes, my vegetables, my fruits. So 10% I gave to the Levi, the meiserishen. 10% I gave to a member of the tribe of Levi. This was called meiser. So if I had 100 stalks of grain, 10%, which means 10 of them I would give to the Levi. There was also another tithing called truma. That was actually done first. Around 2% I gave to the Kayan. So if I have 100 stalks of grain, I took two of them and I gave it to the Kayan. Then 10% of what was left over from 98 stalks, I gave 10% to the Levi. This is called Meiser. And then there's a mitzvah called Bikurim. What is Bikurim? Bikurim comes from the word Bikhar, which means the firstborn. If I go into my field, where there are, my orchard, there are trees. So I search for the first fruits that have become ripe. Those special seven unique fruits with which the Holy Land was praised, which is chita, sa'ira, gefen, te'ena, rimen, zeis, shemen, advash. Wheat and barley, that's grain. But then you have grapes, vines, you have figs, gefen, te'ena, chita, sa'ira, gefen, te'ena. You have rimen, pomegranates, you have olives, and finally you have, um, Dvash is tomorrow, dates. So chita, sa'ira is wheat and barley, and then you have gefen, is again grapes, ta'ina figs, rima in pomegranates, and olives and dates. So if I get, say, go into my field, and I see, this is the season, a fig tree. Ooh, there's a new fig, and the fig is ripe, it's ready to eat. So I dedicate this fruit, and I say, hareza bikurim, this is the first fruit that's going to be given to the Kohen in the Beis Hamikdash in Jerusalem. You take some of the ripe fruits, you fill up a basket of the ripe fruits of one of these seven species, you bring it to Yerushalayim, and you give your basket in the Holy Temple to the Kayan, discussed in Parshish Kisavi with a special, beautiful uh, prayer and expression of gratitude to God. This is the mitzvah of Bikurim. Says the Madrish that the merit of these three mitzvahs, the world was created. Chala, Maiser, and Bikurim. Matam. Why? Bereshis Borelikim. It says, Bereshis, in the beginning, God created. Ve'en Reshis, Elechala, Shanam, Reshis, Arisesech. Bereshis Baralakim is also giving me the purpose of creation. Bereshis Baralakim, God created the world for Reshis. Chala is called Reshis. In Parchas Shlach, Reshis Arisesechim, the beginning of your dough, the genesis of your dough, the first portion of your dough, you have to separate as Chala, and it goes to the Kohen for him to eat, or for his family to eat. Ve'en Reshis Alamaisris. Maiser, the tithing is also called Reshis. The Pasuk says in Dvarim, Reshis Goncha. The beginning of your grain you give to the Levite. Bikurim, the first ripe fruits which you give to the Kohen are also called Reishis. Shenemar, Reishis Bikurei Ad Moscha. The beginning, the genesis of your ripe fruits that grow on your land you give to the Kohen in Jerusalem. So Chala is called Reishis, Bikurim is called Reishis, Meiser is called Reishis throughout the Chumash. So when it says Bereishis Barelikim, the sages in the Midrash looked, where does it say Reishis? God created the world for Reishis. They said, ah, Chala is called Reishis. Maisa is called Reishis. Bikurim is called Reishis. The world was created for these three for these three purposes. Chala, Maisa, Bikurim. Now, this is extremely enigmatic. I can understand the first opinion in the Midrash, the opinion of Rabbanoi, the world was created for the Torah. Rashi also says, Bereishis, Bishvil HaTorah. Torah is called Reishis. Hashem Bechach, Mayasad Aretz. God created the earth for wisdom, created the world for Torah. 
that the blueprint of Torah, the ethics of Torah, the values of Torah, the transcendence of Torah, the goodness and kindness and holiness that the Torah represents should ultimately be materialized and realized in our planet to create a world that is filled with goodness and kindness and holiness and godliness and harmony and unity. I can understand the second opinion. The world was created for Moshe. Moshe Rabbeinu is not just an individual. Moshe represents the Jewish people. Moshe was the quintessential leader of the Jewish people. Rashi even says in Parshish Chukas that the Torah could use the name for Moshe and really mean the Jewish people because Yisrael, hey Moshe, and Moshe, and Yisrael, Hamnasiyuakal. The leader Moshe represents all of the Jewish people. So the world was created for the Jewish people to revolutionize the landscape of planet Earth and light up our world. Each of us is an ambassador of love and light and hope and healing and redemption to light up the world. We were chosen in order to teach every person that every person was chosen, carved in the image of God to be able to make this world a brighter place. So Bereshis, Rashi says it right in the beginning, Bereshis is Bishvil HaTayro, Bishvil Yisrael, for the Torah and for the Jewish people. But what's the third opinion in the Medrash? You plucked out from 630 mitzvahs, three mitzvahs that have to do with agriculture, Chala, Maise Bekorim, and for these three mitzvahs, the whole world was created. It seems like very strange, especially in contrast to the first two opinions. How are we supposed to understand this? I'm going to change the subject again. So I want you to follow the train of thought, right? We started off, you remember, with a mikveh, not using tap water. We went to this midrash, which deals with the purpose of creation. And now we change the subject again. We're going to go to marriage now. Okay. If you look at your at your next source in your source sheets, Tractate Saita Yudzayan Aleph. This is a quote from Talmud, Tractate Saita 17a. Darish Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva expounded, If a husband and a wife merit, the divine presence dwells among them. And as Rashi explains, the Hebrew word for man, for a husband, Ish, is Aleph Yud Shin. The Hebrew term for the woman, for the wife, is Isha Aleph Shin He. Both of them contain one letter of God. In Ish, you have the letter Yud. In Isha, you have the letter He. Together, Yud and He makes up Yud K, which is one of God's names. So that's what Rabbi Akiva is teaching us, that when a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, merit, they create a life in which the Shechina, Yud and He, dwells among them. If they would be separate, he would have his Yud, she would have her He. But when they come together, Zachu means when they merit, and Zachu also comes from the word Zach, which means refined. When a wife and a husband, they work on their marriage, they refine themselves, Zachu. Zachu doesn't only mean schus, a merit, but it also comes from the word zachus, which means refinement, purity, clarity. When they refine themselves, when they work on themselves and they become refined, what happens? The divine presence dwells among them. That's the yud and the hey coming together. And Rabbi Akiva says, If they're not refined, they don't have this merit, so they're left without the yud and without the hey, and you have a fire. <laughs> you have fire. You have fireworks, I should say. In other words, there's could be a lot of tension and a lot of strife and a lot of passion, but not necessarily healthy passion and wholesome passion, but negative passion, resentment, frustration, loneliness, alienation, pain, agony, animosity, and various toxic emotions that Rabbi Akiva all includes in the word fire. Because Eish and Eish, Ish and Isha both have fire. 
his fire is tempered by the Yud, and her fire is tempered by the hand. When they come together, you have the Shina dwelling among them. Now, this is a fascinating teaching of the Talmud, and taught by one of the greatest, or maybe the greatest sage in Jewish history, Rabbi Akiva, and we know how much his wife Rachel sacrificed for the relationship. In fact, it was really not expected that she would marry a shepherd like Rabbi Akiva, who was considered a simpleton and a peasant, and she came from Krem de la Krem, quintessence of aristocracy, and yet contrary to her father's wishes and her family members' wishes, her father was Kalba Savua, she saw something in Rabbi Akiva that others could not see, would not see, and she, of course, chose him, and the rest is history. The Talmud says in Sanhedrin that the whole oral tradition of Judaism that we have today comes from the mind and the mouth of Rabbi Akiva, who created students and ambassadors and pupils in one of the most difficult periods of Jewish history in the second century after the Common Era, following the Roman decimation and the destruction of the Second Sanctuary. But I want to understand what does Rabbi Akiva mean when he says, when a husband and a wife merit the Shechina dwells among them. What does he mean by the fact that the Shechina dwells among them? I mean, God's presence is everywhere. Right? We say every morning, the prophet says, the earth is filled with his glory. We say there are certain places where the divine presence is more revealed or manifested. You'll speak about a holy place. You'll speak about a shul. You'll speak about holy place, sacred spaces. We have the Besamikdash. We have the Mishkan. We have sacred places. We have sacred times. Now, it's true. That when a Jew learns Torah, the Pirkei says, the Shechina dwells. When a Jew does a mitzvah, our sages say, the Shechina dwells. When a husband and a wife are living together in peace and harmony, they're actually fulfilling a mitzvah. But Rabbi Akiva is adding something more. Because that's true with every single mitzvah. Every mitzvah of the 613 mitzvahs, every time a Jew sits down to learn Torah, the Shechina is dwelling there. Even one person who's learning Torah, certainly when two people are sitting, three people are sitting, five people are sitting. Mishnah says when ten Jews are sitting, And really every time we do a mitzvah, there's a certain manifestation of the divine presence that dwells in our body, in our soul, in our mind, in our home, in our environment. But obviously he's saying something unique about marital harmony. He doesn't say every time you do a mitzvah, including... If a husband and wife are loving and harmonious and peaceful and integrated, so it's another mitzvah. He's saying something special about marriage. Ish isha. This is a man and a woman who have the yud and the hay, and when they come together, there is a unique manifestation of the divine presence. What is he referring to, Rabbi Akiva? What is this divine presence that Rabbi Akiva is alluding to? So we started off with the mikveh, the enigma of a mikveh, not allowing tap water. We went off to exhibit two, which was the midrash about the purpose of creation, chala ma'isa bikurim, and we went to exhibit three, which is what is the meaning of a husband and a wife living together in harmony and having a zechus, a special merit that the shechina to dwell among them. Now we start the bezer Hashem the explanation. The explanation is going to be based on two sources. Source number one is the Maharal of Prague. Maral of Prague was one of the great sages of the 16th century, he was the chief rabbi of Prague, today in Czechoslovakia, Rabbi Yehuda Liva of Prague, and one of the seminal thinkers in Jewish history, a man who wrote many, many volumes of profound Jewish commentary, scholarship, and thought. And the following is based on his one of his great works, Netzach Yisrael, the Eternity of Israel, in the beginning, chapter 3, where the Maharal explores some of the subjects we're going to be explaining. And the second source is the Ragachavar Gaon. The Ragachavar Gaon was Rabbeinu Yosef Rosen, who passed away, Tainus Esther, 1936. 
a few years before the Second World War. He was the rabbi of Dvinsk, the city of Dvinsk, one of the rabbis of the city of Dvinsk in Latvia. And some of the teachings we're going to be exploring today are based on his ideas as well. I'm going to be presenting it the way I understood it and try to apply it to our lives. Before I go further, I'm going to check if there are any questions, if anybody didn't understand something. So um, I will try to explain it to the best of my ability. Let's see if anybody asked a question. So let's move on. Let's move on to the explanation in all of this. And we're going to be examining two very powerful and interesting terms in various sources in Judaism. They originate in the works of the Rambam, Maimonides, who lived in the 12th century, was born in Spain, Rambam, Rabbeinu Moshe ben Maimon, and then fled to uh, Morocco, and then fled to Eretz Yisrael, and then moved to Egypt, where he lived for the remainder of his life. And the Rambam coins two terms, which are also present in different sources. And their names in Hebrew are Harkavish Chenis versus Harkava Mizgis. Harkava means a hybrid. When two separate things come together, it's called a Harkava. Harkavish Chenis means a neighborly hybrid which means when things are joined together by close association, like two neighbors who live right near each other. Then there is something called Harkava Mizgis, which is an essential and internal hybrid where two separate items are joined by chemistry. So again, you have Harkava Shechenis, which is a neighborly hybrid, like two neighbors living near each other where two things are joined together by a close proximity and association, like neighbors, Harkava Shechenis, versus Harkava Mizgis, where two separate items are joined by chemistry. Let me give a very simple example. If you're making a salad, so you cut up different vegetables into small pieces, and you mix them together, and you have a salad. Prior to making the salad, the onions, the tomatoes, the cucumbers and the lettuce were separate. But now you make one chalant, or I should say one salad, salad, where all of these become neighbors. Now the onions and the cucumbers and the tomatoes and the lettuce and whatever else you put into the salad, the salt and the pepper, the oil, the vinegar are now all neighbors. They're in the same bowl. They're in the same pa- salad. You put them in your plate and you have a mixture of all of these types of vegetables. And when you take your fork or you take your spoon to consume it in that spoon, you'll have perhaps a little piece of tomato, a little piece of cucumber, a little arugula, a little kale, a little uh, spinach, a little, a little oil, whatever it is, a little lettuce, and you'll put it into your mouth. This is called harkovish chenis. They came together, they were joined together as neighbors. They are now part of one salad. However, everybody understands that even if it's difficult and not comfortable, you could still separate them from each other. If I don't like onions, so I could take an onion. I look and I look at the salad and I see an onion. I like onions, so I separate the onions. I don't want tomato, I separate the onions. We all have had, remember, when you raised your children, you're raising your children, there was always a child who didn't like a vegetable, and he demanded that in his salad there should not be tomato. 
or there has to be avocado, or there's not allowed to be onions, or whatever it is. So what do you do? You separate. That's why on Shabbos we have the halacha of boyer, right? We're not allowed to be boyer. What's boyer? Boyer is selecting the bad from the good. If somebody gives me a plate of salad and I don't like onions, I'm not allowed to take out the onions and separate the onions which I don't want to eat. That is called boyer. The rest of the week is perfectly fine to do it. On Shabbos you don't do it. Instead, you eat what you want to eat and you disregard the rest. That's called Harkava Shechenis. Just like two neighbors, they can be close to each other, they can live there for 40 years, but then one day one of them could pick themselves up and leave. In other words, even though they're connected by association, they don't become integrated into a holistic singular entity that is inseparable. But now let's give another example, and that is flour and water. You need a dough, so you take flour, and you mix the flour with water, and suddenly the separate particles of flour become now one integrated cohesive whole. This is what we call a dough. Now, the water and the flour, even though they're two separate entities, they're not just neighbors with each other. Now you have a dough, and I say, you know, could you please separate the flour from the water? Good luck. How are you going to separate the flour from the water? In a salad, even if it's difficult... And painstacking, I could still separate the onions from the tomato. It's not the end of the world. Or the lettuce from the cucumbers. They haven't become a new entity. But in a dough, when I mix the flour and the water now, how are you going to separate the flour from the water? It becomes one new entity, like a panam chadashis. It's a new cohesive entity called a dough, which is a combination of flour and water. And the water is everywhere. It's not like you could say, okay, I'm going to separate 5% of the dough and we'll get rid of the water. <laughs> you don't have any part of the dough that is water without flour, or flour without water. They became completely one. This is an example of what? Harkava Mizgis. It's not just they're connected through a close association or close proximity, like in a salad, in one bowl, you have the onions and you have the lettuce. No! The flour and the water are redefined into a new entity. It's not flour anymore. It's not water anymore. What is it? It's called a dough. I'm going to show you one very interesting manifestation and example of this in Jewish law. If you take a look at your source sheets, source number three, Shabbos Tzadik Hayamad Aleph, Talmud Shabbos, Tractate Shabbos, page 95a, Megabin Chayav Mishum Boina. Are you allowed to make cheese on Shabbos? I still remember my grandmother and my mother, Tzolanga Yaren, they would curdle milk into cheese. I know today it's not very popular, not many people do it. You go and you buy cheese in the store. But they made their own cheese, they made their own yogurt, they made their own butter. Megabin, are you allowed to make cheese on Shabbos? You're not allowed to curdle milk into cheese on Shabbos. Why not? So the Talmud says, Chayav Meshum Boina. You're liable because of the prohibition of Boina, construction. It's construction. What's construction? Construction is you take many pieces of wood or many bricks and you put them together and you create a structure. That's what construction is. Say you build a wall, you build a home. That's what buying is. What do you do here? You took milk. Milk is essentially a liquid. And you took the milk and you curdled it into one cohesive entity called cheese. That's called buying. That's what the Talmud says, the Babylonian Talmud Shabbos 95. Yerushalmi Shabbos, in the Jerusalem Talmud and Tractate Shabbos, chapter 7, Hamagabin Chayav Meshom Lush. You know why you're not allowed to make cheese on Shabbos? You're liable because of the malacha of kneading, 
One of the 39 malachas prohibited on Shabbos is kneading a dough. You're not allowed to knead. So he says, this is what you're doing. You're kneading a dough. What is kneading a dough? You take the flour, you take the water, and the water and the flour become now a solid, cohesive entity. That's what happens with the cheese. What's the argument between these two sources, the Babylonian Talmud and the Jerusalem Talmud? The Rakachavar Gan tells us it's the difference between our cover Shechenis and our cover Mizgis. What's the difference of a home and a dough? When I take many bricks and I bring them together to build a wall, what happened? The bricks are still separate, but they're in close proximity with each other. They now became neighbors. They are now situated one on top of the other, creating a wall. This is called Harkavr Shechenis. When people come together, when people or entities come together, and they're now connected because they are now part of a home, part of a wall, part of a structure. But their identity hasn't been redefined. You can demolish the wall and separate the bricks. What about a dough? When you need a dough, the flour and the water, it's not only they're now neighbors, it becomes a new entity. So the Rekha says that's the argument. In the Babylonian Talmud, curdling milk into cheese is seen as construction. In the Jerusalem Talmud, it's seen as what? As not just association but the two actually become integrated and synthesized into a new entity like dough. That's how he defines the malach of curdling cheese. Now the ramifications are beyond the discussion, but here you see a very classic example. Two sources in Talmud speak about curdling milk into cheese on Shabbos, and they give different reasons of why it's prohibited or liable. One is because baina, it's an act of construction, and the other one says it's an act of kneading. So these, this is the fundamental principle you have to understand. There's two types of unity, Shechenis and Mizgis. If we want to go one step deeper, I'll give another analogy between the difference between a physical mixture and a chemical compound. And this is really, I think, a more, uh, a deeper and more clear illustration of it. I don't know, clear illustration, but maybe in some ways a more authentic illustration of it. What's the difference between a physical mixture and a chemical compound? In a physical mixture, the components retain their original properties, and therefore they can be separated. They can either be separated mechanically, like in solids, or they can be separated physically, like in solutions. Even, for example... You had a coffee this morning. I see some of you are drinking a coffee or a tea. You put sugar in your coffee or tea, right? You may put sugar cubes in your coffee and the sugar cubes dissolve in your tea. So what happens now? Is this Harkava Shechenis or Harkava Mizgis? The sugar and the water and the coffee or the tea were two separate entities, but now the sugar gets dissolved in the water. So when you dissolve the sugar cubes in your tea, the result is not anything new. It's just you have sweet tea or sweet coffee. And while sugar and water together produce a true solution, which is indivisible by such mechanical means as filtering, that's true. But they could still be separated physically by boiling the water into a steam and it leaves a residue of sugar. So therefore you could still separate the two because they haven't really become a third new entity. You just have sweet tea. But let's talk about chemical compounds. Chemical compounds, the atoms of the compound 
The atoms of the compound elements combine to form molecules of a new substance. And their properties are not like those of the original elements. For example, when oxygen and hydrogen combine to produce a water molecule, you now have a new property. We call it, you remember in chemistry, we call it H2O, which is the chemical formula of water. It means that each molecule of water is made up of two hydrogen atoms, H2, two hydrogen atoms, which is indicated by the letter H, hydrogen, and a single oxygen atom, which is represented by the letter O. So you have basically H2 and you have O. This is water, which is a chemical substance, no smell, no taste, no color, but it gives us life. So what happens in a chemical compound? Now the two entities form a new entity which has not existed before. Its properties are not like of the original elements. It's not like when you put your sugar into your tea. Such a compound is formed through a chemical reaction, and only another chemical reaction can break it up. Now, let's go back to the three mitzvahs. Bikurim, Meiser, and Chala. And let's analyze each of these three mitzvahs. What is Bikurim? What is the mitzvah of Bikurim? I explained. You go into your field and you see your fig tree has ripened. There's a new fig. So you mark on this fig, you say, You may tie some, uh, some rubber around the fruit. And this is designated for Bikurim. Bikurim happens with one fruit. You may do it with another fruit, another fruit. You see a new pomegranate. You designate the pomegranate as Bikurim. A new date. You designate the date as Bikurim, or a number of new dates, a number of ripe dates, or a number of ripe figs, or a number of ripe olives, or a number of ripe grapes. There's a cluster of grapes. You go into your vineyard, you see a vine, the clusters of grapes are ripe. You take one grape, or many grapes, or clusters, or one cluster, and you designate it as Bikurim. So Bikurim is associated with a single individual fruit. What is Meiser? Meiser is very different. The mitzvah of Meiser is not I come into my field and I see grain growing and I say, oh, this is Meiser. That's not how it happens. The mitzvah of Meiser, the mitzvah of Truma, happens only after processing, which means, as the Torah indicates, I have to harvest it. What happens after you harvest your grain? You remember what happens? What do you do after you harvest your grain? Those of you who grew up on farms or learned about farms know what happens. Or if you went to a kibbutz, after you you harvest the grain, what happens? So now you make bundles. We call it in the laws of Shabbos, there's plowing, there's planting, there's harvesting, and then you make bundles. Now, it's not yet edible. What are you going to do with it? Now you have to do what's called threshing. Today they do it with machines, they used to do it with animals. The animals would trample on the grain. It was called dosh, disha threshing, and that would separate the kernels from the chaff, at least somewhat. Then you had to winnow it. You would winnow it, you threw it up in the air, and the air would separate the lighter part from the heavier part, so the kernels would fall back down, and the chaff, the external husks, would fly away and fall elsewhere. 
Now you have to select what's called boirer. You have to remove all the pebbles, the dirt, the gravel, the earth, the little rocks and the sand from the kernels. Now you store away all of your kernels. You bring it to your storage place, your silo, and you make piles of kernels and you smooth them out. This is called miruach hakeri. You smooth out the pile of your kernels and now it becomes obligated to tithe. Now it becomes obligated to give a part to the kayan and a part to the levi. So when does the mitzvah of truma and meiser apply? It doesn't apply to the grain, to the stalk of grain as an individual or to the vegetable as an individual vegetable, or to the fruit as an individual fruit. Bikurim, you go into the farm, you look at the tree, there's a ripe fig, a ripe grape, a ripe date, a ripe olive, a ripe pomegranate cake. This is Bikurim. Individually, it becomes Bikurim. You can also take some other fruits. When it comes to Truma and Maisa, the mitzvahs only happens when it becomes a community not when they're individually growing in the field. You're not obligated to give truma and mice. Only after you harvest the grain and you process the grain on your threshing floor, in your garden, in your silo, and you extract all the kernels and that takes a process and you make a pile and now you have met, you have a community of kernels. You have a whole pile, a whole carry of kernels. Now you're obligated to give 2% to the Kayan, 10% to the Levi, 10% to poor people, widows, orphans, the destitute. But when does this obligation apply? Only when there's a community of kernels. After you process the grain and you bring them together. You get it? Very different than Bikurim. Now you have Chala. When is the obligation of challah? You don't go into your field and you see spelt or oats or rye or barley or wheat and you separate challah. You don't even separate challah when you process the grain and you extract the kernels and you winnow, you thresh and you winnow and you select. No. The process of challah, the mitzvah of challah happens much later. You have to take the kernels and you have to grind them into flour and you're still not obligated to separate challah. Now you have to mix the flour and water and you make a dough once it becomes a dough, now you're obligated to give challah. So Bikurim, Meiser, and challah happen in three completely different stages of growth and process. The mitzvah of Bikurim is the first. It happens immediately when it's still attached to the ground in the field, in the orchard. You go to your fig tree, this is Bikurim. One fruit at a time. You fill up a basket of fruits. You can have one fruit, you can have many fruits. But the mitzvah of Bikurim applies to the fruit growing on a tree independently. This grape, this fig, this date, this olive, this pomegranate. The mitzvah of Meiser happens only in a later stage, after harvesting, after you brought together the vegetables into your storage house, you brought together your apples, your oranges, your kiwis, your cherries, and they are now a community, they are now in piles, or you took your grain and you harvested it, and you processed it, and you extracted the kernels, and you made a pile of the kernels called keri and miruach, you smoothened it, that's when you're obligated to give true man meiser, not before. And then chala is yet a third stage. The third stage is, even after it becomes a community of kernels, you're not obligated to give chala, only after you turn it into flour, and you knead it into a dough, and you becomes a dough, that's when you're obligated to give the Kayan Chala. Do you see the pattern here in these three stages? 
Bikurim applies to the fruit as an individual. Meiser is Harkavash Chenis. It's when the fruits and the vegetables become associated by being in close proximity. They become neighbors. All these kernels of grain are now in one pile. They're near each other, but they can still be separated from each other. They're like neighbors. Chala applies when it becomes a dough. Harkavah Mizgis, when the flour and the water now form a new entity that was non-existent before. It's not an entity which is a little flour and a little water that are neighbors with each other. No, it's a new third entity called a dough, and that's when you are obligated in chala. So Bikurim, Maiser, and chala relate to three stages, to three processes. And by the way, it's not just in the reality of it, it's also in the mitzvah of it. Because Bikurim, before I give Bikurim, I'm allowed to eat all the other fruits. It's not like Bikurim is connected to the other fruits. I have to take some of the fruits and bring it to the Besamikdash, but I can eat all the other fruits. So Bikurim is just about taking this fruit or these fruits, placing it in a basket and bringing it to Jerusalem. It's not connected to the other fruits. Chala and Meiser is very different. As long as you don't separate Meiser, you're not allowed to eat from this grain, or from these fruits, or from these vegetables. You have to separate truma and meiser. Before that, it's called teva. You're not allowed to eat it. In other words, when I separate the 10% from meiser, I'm not just separating this part of the food. I'm giving all the food its kosher status. Now all the food becomes kosher for consumption. In other words, meiser is not just about this 10% that I separate. As a result of separating this 10%, what happens? All the food now becomes food that I'm allowed to eat. And the same is true with challah. As long as I don't separate the challah, I'm not allowed to eat this dough. The challah allows me to eat the rest of the dough. So challah and maiser are all about community. Bikurim is about the individuality. And now I'm going to read with you the words of the Maharal. And I'm going to ask you to go back to your source sheets. And come to the fourth source, Netzach Yisrael HaMaral Perid Gimel. This is the work Netzach Yisrael of the Maharal of Prague, chapter 3. Okay? Says the Maharal. I'm going to read the first three paragraphs. The fourth one you can read on your own if you wish later. Remember we learned that the world was created because of three things, right? Bikurim. Why doesn't he mention that the world was created also for truma, the tithing that we give to a kayan? It's also called rashis. But these three mitzvahs have something unique. Bikurim is when a fruit becomes ripe. That's called Bikur. It's the first ripe fruits. And you give one fruit as Bikurim. Meiser is already a later stage. After you process the grain and you smoothed it out into one single pile. This is a second stage, also called Reishis, the beginning. The Bikurim is the beginning when it becomes ripe. The Meiser is the beginning after it was processed and it was turned into a singular pile of kernels. Chala is only after you roll that dough, you mix the flour and the water and you roll that dough and now the beginning of that dough is called Chala. You'll understand that these are three very different mitzvahs. 
דהיינו ביקורים כאשר רואה את העיני של בוקר בלבד אף שהיא יחידיס כוירך עלה גמי לסימן אף שאין לה צירוף הלכה ביקורים is about the individual fruit when you see a fig that has become ripe on its own even though it's individual you tie around some string some rubber string as a sign even though it's not connected to any other fruit אבל מייסר דהיינו כשנסקבץ ביחד כשהמת קרי מייסר only happens when you have a pile. When the kernels combine and connect, they become a kibbutz, a gathering, a community. That's when you give maiser. When there's a whole pile of many kernel, nu- kernels, numerous, can be in the dozens, in the hundreds, in the thousands, in the tens of thousands, in the hundreds of thousands. What about chala? Chala is the next stage. It's not a pile of... Chala, you're not obligated when you have a lot of flour in your house because those particles are separate. It's only when the flour mixes with water and all the particles of flour now become one entity and one entity with the water. Now you don't have particles of flour anymore that are separate. You have a singular dough mixed with the water. This represents the creation. The first stages where each being is individual and dependent. Stage two are the creations that combine together and they're in a kibbutz. They're in working in cooperation. They work in systems, in structures, in organizations, in an organized way. But they're not mixed together. They're not one. They're separate, but they're near each other. They are together. They're working in close association. They're like in one company. And then you have the third component of creation, when things become completely united and integrated, synthesized, where they become one new entity. Think about these three stages. The first one is remote from any hybrid. It stands alone. Stage two is like neighbors. Neighbors who live together, they work together, hopefully they cooperate, they take care of the block, they take care of the backyard, they take care of the alley, they are connected together, they are like neighbors who are mixed up in the sense that they are working together. The ain't kan eruv, but nobody's going to say they're completely integrated. The third stage is a chemical hybrid, a chemical compound, where two completely separate atoms come together and they form a new entity like a molecule of water. Hydrogen is not water. Oxygen is not water. But two atoms of hydrogen, one atom of oxygen, H2O, come together. And you have a whole new entity which we call a water molecule. And now they're one. When I'm drinking my water, I don't say, oh, there's the oxygen, there is the hydrogen. (laughs) Do you drink water and you say, oops, this is the action. When you're teaching about it or you're learning chemistry, but when you're drinking water, you're drinking water. This is called Harkava Mizgis. What is the Maharal teaching us? The Maharal is teaching us this, that there are essentially three dimensions to the world. There's three dimensions to your life. 
There is everything as an individual. I am I. What does Hillel say? If I am not for me, who is here for me? There is you as an individual. That's represented by Bikurim. There is you vis-a-vis others. We're all in relationships. You're part of a planet. You're part of human civilization. You're part of a nation. You're part of a country. You're part of a community. You're part of a family. There's the extended family. There is the, the intimate family. The nuclear family, as they call it. But you're part of a family. This is your relationship with others. You have neighbors. You have friends. You're not just living on your own in a cocoon, in isolation, on some isolated planet. So there is me as an individual. I, there's you and there's I. There's you and there's me. You're an individual. I'm an individual. He's an individual. She's an individual. Every nivra, every created being has its own uniqueness, its own properties, its own identity, its own strength, its own weaknesses, its own challenges, its own virtues, its own vices, and its own unique narrative. No two people share the same story, even if they're twins who grew up in one family. We share lots of common stories, but we also share a unique story. It says in Tehillim, I know that God is great. And the way I know it, you don't know it, because every person manifests a unique, distinct, divine experience. When you have 7.7 billion people, each one created in the image of God, what it means is that each one manifests God in their own unique way, because no two people are alike. As the Mishnah says in Sanhedrin 37, no two faces are alike, no two mindsets are alike, no two psyches are alike, and no two souls are alike. And even if genetically we are so similar, that's true. But we're also unique. You know, 50% in terms of genetics, I share 50%. Comma, I'm, I'm, I'm like 50% of me is just like a banana. So when I look at a banana, I could feel kinship with the banana. Because in terms of DNA, I share 50% of my DNA is identical to the DNA of a banana. And 98% of my DNA is identical to the DNA of a chimpanzee. And therefore, when I watch a chimpanzee, there is kinship, there is deep connection. We are all connected. It all came into existence from his DNA. DNA is called today letters, words, but there is the 2% that sets me apart from the chimpanzee. And when you have brothers and sisters who within a nuclear family share identical DNA, but there is that one little tiny nuanced variation that makes you who you are. That's the imprint of God individually, the way it is manifested through your life individually. That's you as an individual. There is you in your relationship with others. So many relationships. We grow up and we have friends, we have a community, we go to school, and we have relatives, and we have, of course, the nuclear family. And then there's a third component. Third component is when two actually become one, when they're redefined as a single entity. And the Maral of Prague is saying these are three dimensions that apply to the entire world. Every aspect of the world ultimately is multifaceted and multidimensional and operates on these three levels of consciousness and reality. As an individual, as part of a collective body, we are all part of this big machine, this unique reality called planet Earth, or, the, or the, really part of the entire cosmos. 
and there is the need for cooperation. We have to work together. We're in a kibbutz. We're gathered together. It's like here, this is your world. We inhale the same oxygen and somebody sneezes in Wuhan, China and it affects the whole world and somebody touches a doorknob in Milan, Italy and it affects the rest of the planet because we live in the same world. We inhale the same oxygen and we're responsible for each other and to each other. And then there's a third level of unity where sometimes two actually become one in the formula of H2O. Two atoms, one atom, and they actually join to become a new reality, what we call the water molecule. And that's why truma is not mentioned here as one of the purposes of creation, because it's already included in the concept of Meiser. There's no need to mention just another category. But these three categories say the, tell the, say the, says the Maral, represent three general processes of how life works. And in each one, there's a racious. There's the beginning of you as an individual which belongs to God. There's the beginning of you as part of a collective community which belongs to God. And there's the beginning of you as part of a single entity united with others which belongs to God. That's the mitzvah of Bikurim. That relates to the world as each living organism being an individual. One fruit, you are Bikurim in relation to yourself. Truma Meiser already relates to our relationship with others. Harkava Shechenis. And Chala is the third level, Harkava Mizgis. And which one is true? They're all authentic, they're all real. And that's why in each one of them, there is the mitzvah of giving it to God. And that's what the Medrash says, for this the world was created. The world was created to be able to align ourselves with infinity on all three levels, as an individual, as part of a collective, and sometimes as part of a singular entity. It even has to do with how we grow up. When, you, when you're born, you're an infant, you're a child. And that child completely experiences himself or herself as the sole exclusive reality. That child is the only one who exists as far as he's concerned. It's three o'clock in the morning and he's weeping and crying. And you try telling that infant, you know, mommy had a very hard day. Mommy just fell asleep a few minutes ago. Do me a favor, bubala. Just sleep for another three hours and then I'll wake, I'll wake up with you and I'll feed you and I'll hold you and I'll color you and I'll sing to you and I'll fabrain with you. And what will your infant respond? No, you're going to wake up right now. You're going to hold me right now. You're going to change my pamper right now. You're, you're going to take care of me right now. As an infant, Bikurim, Bechayr, I am I. This is reality. We grow up. Part of growing up and the brain development and a lot of research on this is when the child can realize that he or she is in a relationship with others. There is me versus my mother. There is me versus my father. There is me versus my siblings. There is me versus other entities. It's when we can create separation and therefore community. It's not just I and everything is part of me, but there's rather a recognition of differentiations and therefore there could be a recognition of neighboring, of neighbors, of proximity, of connection, of association. And throughout our entire life, we operate on both levels of consciousness. But then comes stage three. What is stage three? Stage three is the ultimate of what Judaism defines as a real marriage. What is a marriage? Husband and a wife become a new entity. It's called one flesh. Mathematically, one plus one equals two. The magic of marriage is that one plus one should equal one. 
That when the hydrogen and the oxygen come together, they're not just living together as neighbors. It's not just a salad where he's the onion and you're the tomato or he's the arugula and you're the spinach or he's the kale and you're the cucumber and you're living together in one salad, which is not a bad thing. It's a pretty healthy marriage. Kale, spinach, arugula, cucumbers, way to go. But it's much more than a salad. It becomes a dough. The particles of flour, each particle of flour is separate, but when you knead the flour with the water, there's no separate particles anymore. Now you have one singular dough, and it's not any more flour and water that came together. There is one entity, upon him chadashes, the water and the flour are completely mixed into each other. You can't even recognize and se- the difference, you can't separate it anymore. It's not like the salad. It's very difficult to separate. If you want to separate the chemical chemical compound, you need another chemical reaction to undo it. What is the concept of marriage the way Judaism sees it? It's not just a husband and a wife get married, a man and a woman get married, and they become good neighbors in a home. (laughs) He becomes a tenant, she becomes a tenant, they're sharing the same home, so you have to be civil towards each other, you have to be respectful towards each other, you have to be nice to each other, somebody has to take out the garbage, you know, like in a dormitory. You're living together in a dormitory, whether they have it in a yeshiva, in the boys' school, in the girls' school, fraternity, whatever it is, in college, you're living together, you have to be civil to each other. That's not what a marriage is. That's good. But a marriage is something much deeper. A marriage is harkava mizgis. Harkava mizgis is like the chemical compound where now two people are not just two separate people, rather the two people become a new entity, Ponem is a new face, a singular new entity called a zug, a couple which is married. A married couple are two people who become one. And becoming one does not mean that you undo the first two components of their life. A husband and a wife still have their individuality. I am I, you are you. Different talents, different personalities, Different issues, different challenges, different struggles, different insecurities, different childhood traumas, different skeletons, different demons, different gifts, different virtues, different resources. They grew up in different homes. They have different dispositions. That remains. There is also the element of we're neighbors, we're living together. And then there's the third component, Harkava Mizgis, that element of absolute cohesion and integration. And it's not, you don't, it's not like a salad. You take away the onions and the onions are gone. A husband goes away for three weeks on a business trip, pre-coronavirus. He's married in the same way. The marriage has not ceased. The woman travels somewhere. The marriage is still intact because you are one. You are inseparable. You are one entity. But how can this happen? Could this happen? Is this too romantic? Is this too abstract? Is this too mythical? And the answer is that this type of unity requires transcendence. Because I have my ego, and you have your ego. I have my insecurities, and you have your insecurities. I have my mishagas, and you have your mishagas. And we all have our idiosyncrasies. What allows us, really, to be able to transcend our differences? And within those differences, to be able to develop that type of cohesion, that type of trust? And this is where the divine reality comes into the picture. Remember, all of us come from one source. When we trace back our identities back to the source, we're all one. It's like a family. You look at siblings later in life, and sometimes, tragically, they're fighting with each other. But if you trace them back to their source, 
one mother. They all come from one mother. And when they were babies in the house, mommy just saw them as one beautiful, loving, harmonious family. Then they grow up and each goes his own way or her own way. And often there's strife and conflict. And it's very tragic. It shouldn't be that way because essentially they come from one place. The world comes from one source. We come from one source. We come from one father and one mother, Adam and Chava. The Mishnah says in Sanhedrin, nobody can ever tell anybody else, I am superior to you or your race is inferior to my race or your ethnic group is inferior because of any external factor of your life. You are and I am. We are descendants of the same mother and father and we come from one source, one progenitor, one creator and therefore essentially we're one. However, creation is multiplicity that came from unity, fragmentation that came from oneness and from unity. So the more we separate from our source, the more separation. The more we go back to our source, the more oneness. What is marriage now, I ask you? Is marriage harkava shechenis or harkava mizgis? If I had to ask you, what is marriage? Is marriage two people living together? Is that what marriage is? That's one definition of marriage. But our sages saw marriage as something much deeper. Harkava Mizgis. And now come back to the teaching of Rabbi Akiva. You remember? When a man and a woman merit, the Shechina dwells among them. What does he mean? God is not fragmented. Hashem Echot. God is one. God is not one in the sense of two neighbors who are living together, of the onions and tomato in a salad. God is one in an indivisible way. Hashem Echad, God is absolute oneness. It's not subject to pieces and particles and fragmentation. God is oneness. Says Rabbi Akiva, when a husband and a wife appreciate this and they refine themselves, Zachu, you know what you experience in the marriage? The Shechina, the divine presence. So what happens? This allows two people to actually become one. And one does not mean that one of them has to forfeit his or her personality. There's a t-shirt that reads, I'm very easy to get along with once you learn to worship me. That's mythical oneness. Oneness doesn't mean you don't have a personality. Only one person wears the pants and controls everything, so therefore you don't have two, you only have one. That is not marriage. That's called control, dictatorship, tyranny. Marriage means that two people with their differences can really build such a trust and loyalty to each other that they're not separate any longer. They're two people, and as two people, they're one. How does that happen? How can two become one? Two is two, not one. The answer is, when we introduce the Shechina, when we get in touch with the divine core of our own reality, both the husband and the wife, when they're elevated to that place, the Balatanya, the Alter Rebbe writes in the Torah, he said this Maimon at a wedding, what's the difference, what's the reason that we lift up the groom and the bride at the wedding? You know, you put the chasen on the shoulders and they lift up the kala on a chair. Today they do them on a table, they put them on a table and they dance with the chasen and kala elevated. Why? So I always thought it's just for fun, you know, why not? Make a little joy. But the Balatanya says in the Kudatayda something incredible. He says, because you're giving them the recipe to be able to unite for life. What allows them to unite for life? If they lift themselves up. If they remain terrestrial, if they remain bound to the earthly external vision of reality, then separateness is the name of the game. 
I'm busy protecting my interests, you're busy protecting your interests, hopefully we can be a little civil, but even that's very difficult because we're sitting on each other's heads all our life. So you tell the chassan and the kala it's important for you to elevate yourselves. It's important for you to go to a higher plane, a higher reality. What does this mean? To go into your own unique spiritual elevation to understand yourself as part of divine infinity. When you can align yourself with divine infinity, when you can go to a higher place, both the groom and the bride, now when you go home from this wedding, you'll actually be able to become our kava mizgis, not our kava shchinis. You won't only be like two people sharing the same dormitory room, renting the same apartment, and you have to get along because you're using the same kitchen and the same couch. But rather, there will be able to be a level of trust and oneness where even though you remain two people, and you have to remain two people, a husband is a husband and a wife is a wife, they're not supposed to change each other's personalities that they completely forfeit their own unique magic and charm and personality and humor and depth and perspective. We may be driving in one car, but we're looking out two different windows. There's the passenger looks out the window and the driver looks out his or her window and they may see different landscapes and different visions. And still, as two distinct people, there is a third dimension which turns them into one singular entity in the sense that there is absolute trust where I know that you have my back a thousand percent, you know that I have your back a thousand percent, we will become inseparable and indivisible, a third entity. This is how Judaism understood what a marriage is really capable, what a great marriage can accomplish and what a great marriage can look like and what we are capable for in our relationships. The divine presence is not compartmentalized, it's indivisible. And now I'm going to show you how this expresses itself in a fascinating halacha. If you can again open up your source sheets, go to your source sheets, the last source, Yerushalmi Shabbos Yud Gimel. Jerusalem Talmud Tracte Shabbos 13, listen to this. Little introduction, one of the 39 labors prohibited on Shabbos is you're not allowed to write. You're not allowed to write on Shabbos. Two letters is a biblical violation of the sanctity of Shabbos. Two letters. So let's say I'm writing the name Shimon or Shmuel and I write Shin Men, Nishgut. That is liable in the time of the temple. If I did it by mistake, I would have to bring an offering called a carbon chat as a sin offering. Says to Yerushalmi, this is all if you're writing any other word in the alphabet but if in any alphabet, it could be English, could be Hebrew, could be Yiddish, could be Portuguese, could be Man. But if you are writing God's name, you are not liable until you write out the whole name. That is so strange. So let's say I write Hashem's name. Aleph, Dalet, Nun, Yud. Aleph, Dalet, I'm not liable until I write the whole name. Why? What's the logic? It's so strange. Any other word in the alphabet, if you write two letters, you violated Shabbos on a biblical level. You have to bring an offering. But when it comes to God's name, until you don't write the whole name, you're not liable. Why? Explains the Rakachavagoyan. Because writing God's name is not just writing technical letters. It's actually a manifestation of divine energy, and divine energy is always oneness. How do you know something is divine? You sense the oneness. Hashem Echad. When you're in touch with God, there is oneness, there is harmony. The world becomes one. You become one. You're unified in yourself. You're unified with people. You're unified with your spouse. You're unified with the children, with your children. You're unified with the cosmos. How do I know I'm living in a space of divinity? 
when I'm living in a space of oneness, of achdos, of harmony, when I'm not living in a space of oneness, fragmentation, compartmentalization, it means in my consciousness I'm detached from the divine because in the divine, ein oid malvadai, everything is part of divine infinity. So therefore when I write God's name, if I only wrote two letters, it's not like I wrote two letters. I wrote nothing. Because in every other word, each letter is self-contained. Two letters, great. You did the malacha of Shabbos on writing. You're not allowed to write on Shabbos. But with God's name, it's indivisible. And therefore, either you wrote the whole name or you wrote nothing. If you didn't write the whole name, you didn't get it. You didn't get a part of it. It's not made of parts. It's not harkava shchenis. It's harkava mizgis. The moment we, when I can go deeper into that place of divinity and I can heal myself from my insecurities and traumas that separate me from the world and separate me from people, I can discover that deeper unity. Now, it's easier to talk about it than to do it because sometimes our body carries so much heavy toxicity and so much trauma. This is what Avaidas Hashem means. Avaidas Hashem means letting go of these external definitions of who you are and who your spouse is and who your children are and who other people are so that you can operate on this level of consciousness. Now you will understand the secret of the mikveh. The secret of the mikveh, and I'm going to read to you the words of the Rakachavar. Take a look at your second to the last source. Shailas Achuvenes Tafnas Paneach Simen Chavtes. Rakachavar God. Listen to these words. The Kamoi de Memsa Tsarek Dafke Shiyashir Echad Mechuber Begeder Harkova Mizgis Veloish Chenes Olakach Postle Shaov Misham Dava Chibur Adam de Ene Chibur. The forty Sa'ah, which is the amount of water that makes up a kosher mikveh, has to be water that is completely cohesive and integrated, not like neighbors that are in close proximity but actually a new reality of oneness. And that's why if it's top water, it's not good for a mikveh because that was brought together by a human being and that does not have the ability to create this type of cohesion and unity. What the Rekachavar is telling us is the power of a mikveh is that the 40s of the mikveh, even though it's made up of many drops of water, actually are defined as a singular entity. And that's why they have the power of cleansing because impurity means I am dis, I'm not aligned with my divinity. Purity, tahara means I'm aligned with my infinite divinity. If the water is mayim sha'uvin, which means this mikvah was created through human resources, through human faculties, through the human being processing the water. Let's say I fill up buckets of water and I pour it into the mikvah, right? or I put on the faucet and I have the water flow into the mikveh, then the most I can create is water that is in close proximity with each other. Only when the water is divine water, it's natural divine water, then it has a different element to it. It can have the element of indivisible oneness, and therefore it can create an intimacy which is indivisible. That's why before the relations between a husband and a wife, the physical relationship, there is the mitzvah of mikveh. Mikveh allows the woman to experience a different type of unity, the divine unity, the shechina shriya which allows for man and woman to become one, not only physically, but also emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually. 
That's the difference between a mikveh that is made through man. A man-made mikveh is wonderful. But man-made unity is very external and transitional and superficial because I did not manage to really go to the place of complete trust and complete oneness. Only a divine mikveh, a flow of water, of wisdom, of inspiration, of vitality that is divine allows me and my spouse to open ourselves up to the core of our reality, which is one with Hashem, and therefore we could become really one with each other. So that a couple can truly trust each other, rely on each other, lean on each other, be there for each other. This doesn't mean they don't disagree. This doesn't mean they're not individuals. This doesn't mean they have different interests. This doesn't mean they have different mishagasin. This doesn't mean they have different personalities in so many different ways, different careers, different vocations, and sometimes arguments. What it does mean is that within the differences, there is an absolute sense of trust, an absolute sense of loyalty, which comes from the fact that he always knows that his wife is part of him and she knows that her husband is part of her. And to get into a fight with each other, to embarrass each other, is like amputating a piece of yourself. You're not fighting with your husband or with your wife, you're fighting with yourself. This is one new entity, a large entity. You become one flesh. And blessed is the home where this atmosphere and ambiance is worked on. Now, none of us are perfect, but this is something we can work on and strive towards when we're open with each other, when we could explore our skeletons and explore those insecurities and obstacles that don't allow us to enjoy that relationship. And now look at the three mitzvahs that define the Jewish home, the three special mitzvahs that were entrusted to the Jewish woman, all operate on this level of consciousness. What are the three mitzvahs? The Sfarim say they're indicated in the name Chana, right? Chala, Nida, and Adlaka Saner. There's the mitzvah of Chala, there's the mitzvah of Mikvah, family purity, and there's the mitzvah of lighting the Shabbos candles and welcoming Shabbos. Look at all these three mitzvahs. What do they have in common? Why are these the three mitzvahs given to the woman? Chala, we explained, when do you have the mitzvah of chala? Only once the particles of flour have been kneaded with the water and have become one. Chala is not like Bikurim, it's not even like Meiser, it's not individual and it's not Harkava Shechenitz, it's Harkava Mizgis. I hope by now you recognize the meaning of these words, if not, listen to the class again. Harkava Mizgis, chala is only when it becomes a dose. So the mitzvah of chala represents Two separate things that not only are cooperating with each other, but they're actually completely unified to the point that they're not anymore two. They have become a new identity called Isa. That's when the mitzvah of challah re- begins. Only then. You're not obligated to give challah from flour. You're not obligated to give challah from kernels. You're not obligated to give challah from grain. You're obligated to give challah only once it is a dough. That's the mitzvah of Chala, all the particles have become one and the water and the flour are now indivisible. That's what a Jewish home looks like. That's what a marriage looks like. Not just two people living together, but like flour and water. The flour has been separate, separate particles. They become connected and not just they're in a kibbutz together. The Maral uses the word kibbutz in a gathering, but they are actually redefined as a singular entity, and the water and the flower is a singular entity. So you have the mitzvah of challah, then you have the mitzvah of mikveh. We just explained what is mikveh. Mikveh is not top water. It's not human water. It's water that comes from heaven. In other words, it's natural water. It's water that has the imprint of 
the divine on it, and therefore it can allow for cleansing. It can allow for me going out of my disassociation and my conscience with the divine, submerging myself completely. The word tefillah is the same letters like habitl. I completely shed my external layers and submerge myself into the source of oneness. It's where the child spent nine months in the amniotic sac pre going out to the world and learning about fragmentation. It's going back to that space of indivisibility of oneness. That is what water is. When I look at an ocean, I only see water. I don't see the differences of the creatures. I see oneness in the water. When you look at a body of water, what do you see? There may be millions and billions and trillions of creatures, and well, not trillions, but you have a lot of creatures under the water. But you don't see them, not because they're not there, but because they are covered, they are united by the singular bed of water. When you look at dry land, all you see is diversity, but in water, you see the oneness. So Mayim represents the oneness of creation. The achdos, the harmony. This doesn't mean there is no differences. Oh, go scuba diving. Go take a trip under the water. There's a lot of diversity, but the diversity is defined by oneness, Mayim. That's the unity of water. And when the mikveh water, which is a reflection of the natural divine water, is present, and I go into that water. That's why the mikveh has to be in the earth, in a natural system that God created. And I go into that, I can experience in my conscious that level of unity. And the water is considered integrated water. It's not a chibur bidei adam, it's a chibur bidei shamayim, as the Rakachava puts it. That's the second, mikveh, the second mitzvah that defines the Jewish home. And then there's lighting the Shabbos candles. What is Shabbos? If you realize all of the labors of Shabbos we spoke about, you're not allowed to harvest, and you're not allowed to thresh, and you're not allowed to select, and you're not allowed to build, and you're not allowed to knead. And of course, you're not allowed to carry. What is Shabbos? Shabbos is the time when the world graduates from being a Rishus and becomes a Rishus HaYachid. Shabbos is that one day when we are capable of accessing the divine core of the world, where there is oneness. That's why I can't transport items from a public domain into a private domain, or a private domain into a public domain, because on Shabbos, there is one domain, one singular domain, Rishus HaYachid. I'm not allowed to... I'm not allowed to live in that place where I leave the private domain to go into a public domain or where I harvest grain, which means uprooting something from its source. Or or where I need, I take flour and I mix it with water, which is a superficial physical unity because on Shabbos, there's an organic, spiritual, innate unity in the world. So what is Shabbos? Shabbos is the time when the unity emerges in the world, when the purpose of creation comes into the world. That's why our sages tell us that their time for intimacy would primarily be on the night of Shabbos. You see, and when a chemical compound is created, you need another chemical reaction to undo it, which is, by the way, the concept of a get. It's not easy for a husband and a wife to separate. It's not just the husband and the wife tell each other, okay, it was nice knowing you have a wonderful day, you say goodbye. No. Toysvis says in the beginning of Tractate Gitten that a get has to be written like a Sefer Torah. You know that? A get, a, a document of the voice has to be written like a Torah scroll. In fact, it has many similar halachas because the Torah says Sefer Christmas. But one second, the Sefer Torah was the marriage document between God and the Jewish people. The get is the opposite. But that's precisely the point because when you have a chemical compound, 
You can't just separate it. You need another chemical reaction to undo it. So that's why the Sefer Torah, which creates the marriage between God and the Jewish people, needs the get, which has to have another, which is another chemical reaction to undo this level of unity. To undo the level of unity of marriage is so powerful, it doesn't happen just in a superficial way, let's just leave. It's not like two neighbors living together or two people sharing the same dormitory and they say goodbye to each other and you sign, if you pay up, you have to pay up and you go and you leave. You pay your electric bill and you pay your telephone bill and you pay the water bill and you pay the gas bill and you say, Shalom, have a wonderful day and I'll see you later or I won't see you later. That's Harkova Shechemis when it's Harkova Mizgis. Ooh, it's a whole different reality. Now you're dealing with complete unity, to be able to undo that unity is a very serious process. That's the process that's called a get. Because a Sefer Torah also is not only a unity of proximity. If one letter is missing in a Sefer Torah and Parshas Ha'azinu, I can't even read Parshas Bereshas. What's the connection? I'm reading the portion of this week. Who cares that in 39 portions there's going to be a letter that's missing? It's ridiculous. Imagine you're reading a novel, right? Lahavdil, and there's a letter missing on page 1212, and you're holding page three and you get upset. When you get to that page number, we'll worry about figuring out that letter. You'll figure it out anyway. Why is it that by a Sefer Torah, one letter is missing and the whole Torah is disqualified? Because you're not, the letters are not neighbors. The letters have become one entity called a Sefer Torah. It's a transcendent divine entity. If one letter is missing, you don't have any of the letters. You don't have the sanctity. Because it's not individual letters that are having a relationship. It's one transcendent, cohesive entity. That's the Sefer Torah. That's the marriage document. To undo that, you need a document that is powerful enough to be able to undo that level of the relationship. So, we explained a little bit the concept of a mikvah. We explained the mitzvah of challah. We explained the mitzvah of... Lighting the Shabbos candles. Those are the three mitzvahs that define the Jewish home, that define the unity of this level. That's the concept of the mikveh not having top water. It's the concept of Rabbi Akiva, and it's the medrash that the world was created for these three types of experiences. Bikurim, Meiser, and Chala. And in each one of our lives, we operate continuously on these three levels of consciousness. There is appreciating and cherishing you yourself as an individual, unique and rare, even within a marriage, even within relationships with others. There is you appreciating your relationship with others, whether it's your neighbors, your community, your people, your nation, your land, your country, the whole world, the planet, the cosmos, we're all connected. We are all integrated. Of course, there's a relationship with your parents and your siblings and close relatives and close friends. This is called we care for each other, we're connected to each other, we're responsible to each other, we love each other. And then there is those unique relationships, that ability to be able to tap into the unifying core of the universe where everything is one with the divine and infinite. Here is where the ultimate and greatest, deepest unity comes from the indicated by Chala. It's what's exemplified by a marriage, a binyan adeyad, between a husband and a wife. It's that ideal of a relationship where two become one, which as the Maharal explains elsewhere, allows us then to reveal that unity in the world. That's why siblings are not supposed to get married. You know, it's been argued that a husband, brother and a sister would have been the best marriage. They grew up in the same home, the same mishagas and the same issues. Let them get married. Kayan and Hevel married their sisters. The Maharal says, no, marriage is about 
diversification of the gene pool. It's revealing the oneness with a stranger. You don't marry your sibling. You don't marry somebody who is near you. You marry somebody who's different than you, somebody who comes from a different family. And it's there you reveal the unity. That becomes the catalyst for revealing the unity in the entire world until that great moment. Thank you very, very much. Have a beautiful and meaningful day. We will have this class, God willing, next Tuesday, 9.30 a.m. right here on the yeshiva.net and on Zoom. Jacobson, thank you so much. Could you could you send us the full sheet? For some reason, I only could see the top of the sheet and not the bottom. Yes, go to the yeshiva.net. Yeah. The yeshiva.net. T-H-E-Y-E-S-H-I-V-A dot net. You got that? Yeah. Okay. When you come to it, you'll see a homepage. You see the homepage, and it says on the top, the first thing, live now, woman's class. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.